my heart was thrilled last night. I'll tell you, I believe God blesses a church that strives together for the gospel. And uh, it was encouraging to see all of the church folk just plugging in and serving in many different capacities. And that is a blessing. And uh, Pastor Henry, I love your clock. I'm convinced that many times it's digital. It makes it easy. You know what I mean? I got, I, uh, I've been at Great Hope Baptist Church as the pastor for three years. I grew up there. My dad pastored it for 32 years. God had, uh, I had worked under my dad for six years as a youth pastor, then gone and pastored a church in the mountains of Virginia uh, for almost nine years, one month from nine years. And uh, when I came back to Great Hope, they had a clock in the back and had Roman numerals. And I thought, I don't know of a pastor that can read Roman numerals, you know? <laughs> like, no wonder, no wonder we always preach over the time because I don't even know what that means. Of course... As one Baptist preacher has said, you know what the clock means in the back of the church? Absolutely nothing, right? But we're going to try to stay in there in the time constraints this morning. I do want to be practical with you this morning. I want to give you something that has been a blessing in my heart and life and really changed the way I approach spiritual maturity. And I hope it'll be a blessing to you. We're in 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter number 1. I love the books of 1 and 2 Peter. They are so practical um, for our spiritual growth and so uh, engaging and uh, all of the Bible is applicable, every bit of it. It's given to us for uh, reproof, for instruction, for correction, for uh, instruction in righteousness. I mean, everything we see in the Word of God. But it's just, I don't know how you are, but sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, there are certain books that just jump off the page and, and just seem to be like they were written uh, yesterday, right? Just today for today's uh, needs. And that's how I feel. I don't know. Maybe I connect with Peter. Uh, Peter always put his foot in his mouth. I have that tendency. And, uh, and so I don't know, maybe it's one of those things, but, uh, second Peter chapter one, and I'm going to try to get through verses three through nine this morning. And I hope it will be a blessing to you. Let's begin in verse number three. It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding and great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound... They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning that you would open our hearts to your word, that the Holy Spirit would teach us. Father, we realize that if there's anything of spiritual significance that's accomplished, it'll be because of you and your word. And so, Father, this morning I pray... Uh, that you be glorified in all that's said. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 21st, 1938, a hurricane of monstrous proportions struck the east coast of the United States. William Manchester, writing about it in his book, The Glory and the Dream, says that the Great Wall of Brine struck the beach between Babylon, and I always get this wrong, but it's it's, uh, I'm horrible at pronouncing some of these names, right? Uh, Patuchka, I don't know, Long Island, New York, at 2.30 p.m. So mighty was the power of that first wave, storm wave that its impact registered on a seismograph in Sitka, Alaska. While the spray carried northward at well over 100 miles an hour, whitening windows in Montpelier, Vermont. 
As the torrential 40-foot wave approached, some Long Islanders jumped into their cars and raced inland. No one knows precisely how many lost the, the, that race for their lives, but the survivors later estimated that they would have had to keep the speedometer at 50 miles an hour all the way. For some reason, the meteorologist, which doesn't surprise us today, who should have known what was coming and should have warned the public seemed strangely bind to the impending disaster. Either they ignored their instruments or simply couldn't believe them. And of course, if the forecasters were blind, the public was too. Among the striking stories which later came to light, says Manchester, was the experience of a Long Islander who had bought a barometer a few days earlier in, in a New York store. It arrived in the Morning Post, September 21st, and to his annoyance, the needle pointed below 29, where the dial read, Hurricanes and Tornadoes. He shook it and banged it against the wall. The needle wouldn't budge. Indignant, he repacked it, drove to the post office, and mailed it back. While he was gone, his house blew away, and that's the way, and his house blew away, and that's many times the way we are, isn't it? We, uh, we, if we can't cope with the forecast, we blame the barometer or ignore it or throw it away. And I see today in our lives, in our culture today, when I say culture, I'm talking about our Christian culture and our fundamental Baptist churches. Many times we get to a place in our spiritual walk with God and we begin to reap the harvest of what we've sown and people are like, I just don't understand why this is happening in my life. I don't understand why this is what the consequences uh, of what is taking place. And, and many times, instead of, instead of reading the Word of God and adhering to it, what we do is we just choose to ignore it. And Peter gives us here in this passage, I believe one of the foundational passages for understanding spiritual growth uh, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the distinct power of God in verse number three. It says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now, do you realize that God has literally given us everything that we need to live righteously and godly in this present world? We cannot claim victim status and say, well, I just didn't have what was needed, um, or I was deficient. There was a deficiency of supply. There is no deficiency of supply. You and I have the relationship with God that we want. We do. If you want to be close to God, if you want to be on fire with, uh, with God, if you want uh, to have a fervent relationship with God, you can have it because he, he is accessible and he's given us his word and everything we need for life and godliness that pertains to life and godliness, he's given to us. But he hasn't just given us all the resources, that being the Holy Spirit and the word of God, but he's also given us the power to live that life. This word power here is the word dunamis in the Greek language. It's the same word we look at in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, which it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And that word dunamis is the word that we get dynamite from. We have the power of God to live the Christian life. We have that resource. And by the way, the Christian life is impossible to live in the power of the flesh. You talk about being miserable. You talk about being discouraged. You, you talk about being def, def, uh, uh, deflated and defeated. Then try to live the Christian life in the power of the flesh. It just is not possible. When we look at the distinct power of God, he's given us everything we need. He's given us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the resources we need. But it doesn't stop there in the verse. Look what it says. Through the knowledge... Of him that hath called us to glory and virtue through the knowledge. So he's given all things 
that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge. Now, this knowledge here, as we look at it, it is not an intellectual ascent. Uh, this is not uh, one of those things where you read about something. This is an experiential knowledge. Uh, the, the Greek word here is epigenosis, and it has the idea of something that you have experienced. And I, I give you this kind of illustration here. I know about George Washington. I know about Thomas Jefferson. I have read about these men, but I do not know them personally. I've never met them. I may read everything I can about them, but I've never met them personally. And that is in stark contrast to our relationship with Christ. Why? Because what we know of Christ, our knowledge of Christ is not just an intellectual knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge because we have a relationship with a living person. He lives within our hearts. We can commune with him. We can talk to him through prayer. He talks to us through his word. And I don't know about you, and I've been in ministry now for right at 20 years, but when God answers a prayer for me, I rejoice. I'm thankful. It, it excites me. You know, sometimes like we made contact, you know. It's a, it's a miraculous thing. I hope I never lose that because I serve a living Savior. And he's working in this world today. This is an experiential knowledge. This is what is not only this knowledge, but it's this knowledge that he's given to us uh, through this knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. The word glory here is the idea of radiance, splendor, brightness. It's the majesty ascribed to God and heavenly beings. You realize if you're saved this morning, you're seated in heavenly places. That there's more to us that is spiritual than that is temporal or carnal. I think so. I heard someone say this, and I believe this. Many times we look at ourselves and we say, I, have a bo- I am a body that possesses a soul. But that's not how God looks at us. We are a soul that happens to be housed in a body. The most, the most important thing is the spiritual reality. Now, I, I say this to our people all the time. You know, the tangible reality is not as significant as the spiritual reality. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, everything that is spiritual will remain for eternity. Your soul, my soul, right, will remain for eternity. Everything we know about this earth is going to burn up. In fact, the Bible tells us that the former things, everything that we know of is going to be wiped away. We're not even going to remember it after that last great battle. And then we step into the eternal state and God creates a new heaven and a new earth and a city called New Jerusalem. We're not going to remember this life anymore. He says he wipes those tears from our eyes, but he also says we're not going to remember the former things. And so the reality that we should live by is the spiritual reality. Not for this world and the temporal, because it's going to pass away. The majesty ascribed to God. I'm so thankful this this morning that I'm a child of the King. I'm so thankful this morning that I have a heavenly Father who's in perfect control over what's going on. I'm so thankful this morning that there is uh, there's more to me that's spiritual than there is physical. Not only do we see the glory, but also virtue. This is moral excellence. God has called us to be a peculiar people. That doesn't mean He's called us to be weird. <laughs> But he's called us to be distinctly different from those who are lost. Distinctly different. We're living in a world today where sides and the distinction of Christianity is becoming camouflaged. You don't even really know who it is that saved. People who claim to be saved and yet every aspect of their living, every action of their living... um, does not align itself with this book. 
God has called us to glory and virtue. So we see the distinct power of God. We see the delightful promises of God. Look at verse number four. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now, Someone just recently asked me that we were having a, our spring concert for our Christian school. And one of the parents who doesn't go to our church walks up and he looks at me and he goes, are you a dispensationalist? And I thought, wow, this is, I, I'd really never met this man. And I don't know really his background. And you don't normally get that question right out of the gate. And I was like, yes, I am. And, uh, and so we started talking about the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology. And, uh, and when we're, when we were, he said, so you don't believe that we're Israel. I was like, no, I don't believe we're Israel. Right Now, there are promises that are given to Israel that are distinct for them, specific to them. But there's also promises given to you and I as New Testament saints. And you've got to go all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Uh, what God has promised here, um, look what it says, just starting in verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you. And peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a, a, a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though for uh, now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation, that the trial of your faith being much more precious of that, uh, than of gold, that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory of the coming and the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, So you can continue on and there's all of these promises and spiritual realities that God has given to you and I. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the promises of God. I'm thankful that we do not have to navigate this life in insecurity about tomorrow. We know. Why do we know? Because God has declared it to be. Not only do we see the delightful promises of God, we see the divine partakers of God. Again, look at verse 4. It says, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, this is a fascinating statement. Do you realize that we are not spectators of the divine nature, but we are partakers of the divine nature? The word part, uh, partaker has the idea of a partner, an associate, a comrade, a companion. It means a sharer in anything. When the moment that we get saved, now we're, we're born into this world with a sin nature. And it's my personal belief, all right, it's my personal belief that the moment you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live within your heart. And I believe at that moment, you are given the divine nature, the new man. Now, I, maybe I missed something growing up, but I, and even in college, I had one professor that that began to explain this, and it's taken me years to actually understand what he was talking about. But if you read through Romans, especially uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8, you'll learn something that Paul teaches, and that's this, that the old man, which is the old nature, is put to death. And we receive the new man and the new nature. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, because Paul says we have the body of the flesh. So we're always battling this body of flesh. We're always battling the desires of this flesh. But when God looks at me, he does no longer sees me as John Godfrey the sinner. He sees me as John Godfrey the saint. Why? Because I'm a partaker of the divine nature. I'm a child of God. 
My sins are forgiven. My sins are under the blood. They're remembered no more. They're as far as the east is from the west. Now, sometimes I say that, and I've said that in the past to people, and they don't kind of get the correlation of what is being said there. If you take your car, and if you could drive around the circumference of the world, if you go, go north, at some point, you're going to start going south. But if you get in your car, and if you could drive the circumference of the world, and you start east, you'll never go west. You're always going east. As far as the east is from the west. And when we think about, when we think about what God's done for us, uh, and the divine partaker, I'm so thankful. Uh, 2 Corinthians in verse 5 and, uh, chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He says, We've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This corruption is moral decay or rottenness through lust, evil desires, caused by evil desires. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men, teaching us. Now this is supernatural, right? It's supernatural because the flesh desires the lust of the flesh, right? The flesh desires that which is sinful, but it's the grace of God that brings salvation that teaches this divine nature. It teaches us to um, deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. If you're lost here this morning, you have no desire to live godly, righteously in this present world. You have no desire for that. Only the saved individual has a desire, which is a spiritual desire, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And it's the grace of God. It's the same grace that brings salvation. And it's the same grace that teaches us and edifies us and progressively sanctifies us and conforms us into the image of Christ. So we see that we're divine partakers. But then we see the diligent piety for God. Verses 5 through 7, it says, And besides this, giving all diligence. Now, this word is an idiomatic expression. It's the idea of bringing every effort into it, right? We are to bring into this relationship, alongside what God has done, every ounce of determination we can muster, right? So what has God done for us? Uh, We're divine partakers. Uh, We see that he's given us everything we need for godliness and righteousness in this present world. Um, He's given us the promises that we see. He has availed to us everything we need. And now he looks at us and he says, now, besides all this, giving all diligence. He challenges us to commitment. He challenges us to discipline. Diligence has the idea of enthusiasm, zeal, um, eagerness. Now, I did hear of a man once that um, was challenged to spread the gospel, and he was a barber. This is back in the day where they used a straight razor and a leather strap, and he had made a determination he was going to share the gospel more faithfully. And so in his barber shop, he lathered up this man's face, He sharpened his razor, and right before he brought it to that guy's throat to shave him, he says, Sir, are you ready to go to eternity? And the guy yelled and ran out the the door. That may not be the right application of zeal, all right? That may not be the right application of zeal. But what God wants us to do now is to approach our relationship with Christ, to approach the spiritual walk with a diligence, with a zeal, with an enthusiasm. He says, what does he say? Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Add to your faith. The word add means to furnish, to grant supply. It's an aorist imperative. It's a command. It's a specific action with a note of urgency. And God's saying, listen, this is important. 
I've done everything that is needed on my part. And he says, now that you know me as your savior, now that you're a divine partaker, uh, a, 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 a partaker of divine nature, you have the word of God, you have the promises. He says, now here's what I want you to do with every ounce of enthusiasm and desire and zeal that you can muster. I want you, I command you now to add to your faith. Add to your faith. Now, he gives us a list of qualities that he wants us to add. The first one we see here is virtue. Virtue is moral excellence and purity. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. God desires moral purity in our lives. We live in an immoral age. Can I say this, though? Sometimes we, sometimes we think, oh, the world's never been this bad. That's not true. It's just not true. What we have experienced for the history of this nation is really unheard of in the history of the world. We have lived for many, many years, if you will, in a cocoon or an incubator of a moralistic society that goes all the way back to our founders, which, by the way, our nation was founded on Christianity, right? And that's a whole other rabbit trail. <laughs> but it was. And we've enjoyed the prosperous blessings of God because of it. And the moral fiber of our country is disintegrating. And we are now experiencing the results and the consequences of an immoral culture. But friend, Europe has been there long before we have. You go to places around the world and the, the, the immorality and the decadence of their societies are far beyond where we are. And you look back into the, through the corridors of history, and I would remind you of the, of the wickedness of Rome. I would remind you of the wickedness of Sodom itself that is a biblical account, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sin has always been around. There's nothing new under the sun. I was just preaching a message on Asa in the Old Testament, and one of the first things that Asa does as he comes to the throne there in Judah is he removes the homosexuals from the land. I mean, that was something that was plaguing the children of Israel, uh, the nation of Judah and Benjamin, that was plaguing them even back in that day. All right, So uh, the world has always uh, been immoral. The world has always been unrighteous. And we're living in a world today that is, that is becoming more and more immoral. But, but there have been people here before that have served God with purity. God desires purity in our lives. We're to add this to our faith. We're to be zealous and enthusiastic about making sure that our lives are virtuous. Not only adding virtue, but he says knowledge, understanding. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We gain knowledge, we gain understanding, we gain that experiential relationship through the pages of the Word of God. And this is something that we should be growing in. This is something that we should be adding to our faith. What's fascinating about this passage, it says, and add to your faith 
If you're younger than 65, no, it doesn't say that in the text, does it? This is not something that has an age requirement to it. This is not something that's just for people that, in the, that are in the, um, the middle of their life or the beginning of their life or the end of their life. No matter what season we are in, we are to add to our faith. This is a continuous aspect. We're to continually be adding to our faith and we're to do that until the day that we see Jesus Christ. So we're to add virtue and knowledge. And then he says, patience. Um, patience is one of those things you don't pray for. Because if you do, you're praying for trials, all right? Um, the idea of patience is a steadfastness or consistency and endurance. And the picture of patience, really, is the picture of Atlas. And there you have that man, and he has the burden of the world upon his shoulders. Patience is remaining under the pressure. So many times in our lives, what do we want to do? God puts us in a situation where the heat begins to rise and, and, the, and the pressure from the potter's hands begins to mold the clay in our lives. And what we want to do is we want to get out. We're looking for the first exit, right? We're, we're looking for whatever will get us out of this trial in the moment. And that's not patience. Patience is remaining under. It's staying on the wheel as as the potter's clay and allowing the pressure of the potter's hand to mold us and form us and shape us into what he would have for us. You know, God knows how to put his finger on our lives better than anything, doesn't he? <laughs> he really does. And so we're to add to our face patience, this, this steadfastness to allow God to form us into the image of Jesus Christ. We're to add godliness. This is a reverence or a piety towards God. You know, God is no longer the Alpha and Omega in many Christians' lives. Sadly, the Almighty is just a slogan to sell T-shirts today. Um, I see things on T-shirts that just amazes me. Listen, God does not need some ditty retreaded from some wicked campaign of alcohol or uh, some other modern vogue saying uh, to relate. God is the Almighty potentate of heaven and he is worthy of our piety he's worthy of our reverence and our respect and we have such a casual uh, approach to god now we approach him as a child we approach him in boldness but not irreverence we have an irreverent culture today when it comes to god he's not the old man upstairs He's God of very gods. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And we should add this to our faith. And the next thing we see is brotherly kindness. This is uh, the Greek word Philadelphia. Now, I've been to Philadelphia. Um, someone told me instead of it being called the city of brotherly love, it should be called the city of brotherly shove. Right? Um, and, uh, but where they get that name there is right here from the, the Greek language, and it's one of the words they use for love, um, phileo, and it has the idea of a fervent, practical caring for others. Now, I have six boys, and uh, my two oldest, when they were young, Judah and Jeremiah, Judah, he had a little bit of a mean streak in him, all right? And one day they're sitting at the table, and, uh, and Judah reaches over and pinches the devil out of Jeremiah, right? Just, I mean, just pinched him for no reason. They're just sitting there eating lunch. And Jeremiah begins to cry, and Judah reaches over and goes, it's okay, buddy. All right, now that's not brotherly love, all right? 
You cause, you inflict the pain, and then you try to bring the comfort at the same time, all right? No, Judah got in trouble for that. It happened. Kristen figured it out, all right? That's not what God's talking about here, all right? Brotherly kindness and brotherly love. How is the world to know that we are his disciples? By our love, one for another. There should be something about the body of Christ, the church, our bond together in the gospel, our bond together because we're the children of the king, uh, the family that God has brought together, our local church. It's an organism, not just an organization and the thing that should separate us from the world is a genuine love for each other we pray for each other encourage each other this should not be the rat race that we see out there this right here should be an oasis of brotherly kindness when we walk through these doors ministering to each other by the way why do you come to church why do you come to church if you come to church because it's a social event if, if you come to church because it's a tradition, you're missing why God has you here. Now, we come to worship God. We come to celebrate a resurrected Savior. We come because God commands us in obedience. But another aspect of worship and another aspect of our congregating, another aspect of our coming together is this, is that we have the opportunity to minister to one another. Weeping with those that weep and rejoicing with those that rejoice and edifying each other. And this is why the popular online aspect today of church is not biblical because you cannot minister to someone else through a TV screen. Now, I'm thankful for the technology. We do it at Great Hope, right? Someone's sick, they can't make it, they can watch online. But this idea of we're just going to stay home and we're just going to have church on the screen, listen, you're missing a major component of the body of Christ, and that's us coming together, and you walk in through that door with an idea of what can I do for Christ today? Church is not about soaking. Church is about serving. And we serve even in these few hours on Sunday as we intermingle with each other and edify each other and sharpen each other, encourage each other. This is brotherly kindness. The last thing is charity here. We're to add to our faith charity. We add charity. This is godly love, agape. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's desiring the highest good for others. It's an undeserved love. So many times when we look at the world and, and we see how they... Um, how they qualify love and define love. It's a reciprocal love. Will you scratch my back? I'll scratch yours. That is not the love that God had for us. There was nothing that we could do to merit the love of God. There was no quality that God saw within us that in some way endeared him to us. No, he loved us with an agape love, a self-sacrificing, undeserved love. He loved us because he chose to love us. And we're to love others the same way. If you have to receive to give love, if you have to receive love to give love, you're not loving the way Christ loved the world. So we're to add to our faith these things. Let's look at the next thing in verse 8. It says, the desirable product of godliness. He says, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you. Now, all, all three of those verbals are in the present tense, which is the idea of ongoing. So you could say it this way. If these things continuously be in you and continually abound, they continually make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You realize what the promise that is right there? 
You realize what an absolute that is? That if we are adding to our faith and we are continually uh, challenging ourselves and we're continually to be zealous and enthusiastic and we are uh, dedicated and committed to our relationship with Christ, if these things are abounding, the word abound means to superabound. It has the idea of increasing. It's kind of like a three-year-old in their energy. Have you ever noticed three-year-olds? They are abounding in energy. I mean, they're like bouncing off the walls, right? And then they come to the end of the day, right? And you're like, you have to go to bed. Oh, I don't want to go to bed, right? You know they need to go to bed, right? They crash and burn, right? I don't know, maybe your kids aren't like my kids, but that's exactly what my kids did at three. They would go so hard all day, and then all of a sudden they get to either nap time or they get to bedtime, and it's just like absolute crash and burn. This is the idea of abounding. It's that, it's that super abundance. We are to abound in these things. These things should be the, the normal consistency of our lives. When we think about this verse and these verses previous to it, the reoccurring theme is commitment. It's commitment. You know, the world understands commitment. Plato wrote the first sentence of his famous Republic nine times before he was satisfied. Cicero practiced speaking before friends every day for 30 years to perfect his elocution. Noah Webster labored 36 years writing his dictionary crossing the Atlantic twice to gather material. Milton rose at 4 a.m. every day in order to have enough hours for his paradise lost. I think of David Livingston, the pioneer missionary to Africa, who walked over 29,000 miles. His wife died early in his ministry. He faced stiff opposition from the Scottish brethren. He ministered half-blind. His kind of perseverance spurs us on. He, he, um, he says, as I run, I remember the words of his, in his diary. Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any tie, but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. So he tells us, he tells us here, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. This is the, if you will, this is the secret sauce of Christian success. Right here, God gives it to us. He says, if we will add to our faith, it will be consistent in this. What is he going to do? It's going to allow us to be in a place spiritually where we're never barren. If you drive out west, you're going to come across uh, wide swaths of land that are barren. They're idle. They're inactive. They're unturned. You'll see unfruitfulness. They're not productive. God says if we will abound in these things, we will not be barren or unfruitful. And get it specifically here in the context, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means my relationship with Jesus Christ will, be get, will be, uh, continually be getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. I will know him personally and intimately. Verse 9 is where we end this morning. Here, Peter, after all of this, kind of takes us to the other side of the coin. He promises spiritual success, a fruitfulness, and an unbarrenness in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. But then he turns the coin over and he says this, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You realize what he's saying here? What he's saying is this, if you aren't adding to your faith, 
then you can get to the place where you're spiritually blind and you cannot see afar off. The word has the idea of someone who is short-sighted or dim-sighted. Do you know a mark of spiritual maturity is this? Is that you don't just see the here and now, but your eyes are focused on the future. Look at, look at the hall of faith there in Hebrews, right? They could see that which was invisible. They never, they never got to see the fulfillment of the promise in their lifetime, but they saw it. They recognized it by faith, by the eye of faith. Their eye was sharp. It was not dim, the Bible says. They could see what God had promised, and they had spiritual maturity. You know, when we think about children, children are immature physically, right? The Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. The rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Now, sometimes we think of that as foolish actions, but I believe it goes even deeper than that. For instance, this morning, if, if I had my, my six-year-old who's in kindergarten, if I had him uh, with us this morning and I had two plates in front of him on a table and one plate had gummy bears and Sour Patch Kids and jelly beans and, uh, and chocolate and it was mounded up on this plate, all this... Um, all of this candy. And then beside it, I had about an inch thick ribeye with some, uh, you know, with some, uh, some type of garlic butter kind of melting across it. And then a sweet potato with maybe some grilled asparagus, right? And, and I had that beside it. Both, you know, that steak was piping hot and just a perfect medium. And I said, hey, buddy, you can have whatever you want on this table. I can tell you right now, 10 out of 10 times, my six-year-old's going for that plate of candy. Plate of candy. Every time he has no appreciation for a ribeye steak, sweet potato, and grilled asparagus. But you know what? Anybody in this room that's actually gained a little maturity values, values the sustenance and the taste of that which is mature over that which is adolescent, Right? And this is the idea. When you and I, when we are spiritually deficient, when we are not adding to our faith, then there's a spiritual blindness. And what we're like is we're like the foolishness, the immaturity of that child where we choose the the, the sugar of this world instead of that which has spiritual significance. We can't see the long-term effects. Man, Jerry doesn't care about diabetes. He's six. He doesn't care about what sugar does to the body. He's six. You know what he wants? He wants instant gratification of sweetness, right? But as we get older, we begin to be able to see. As we mature in our Christian walk, there ought to come a vision, if you will, that allows us to see beyond the immediate. But not only that, the worst thing is this, is they can get to the place, if you're not adding to your faith here, in verse number 9, it says, And I have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So many times in ministry, especially when I was a youth pastor, I'd have a teenager come in, and they'd look at me, and they'd be like, Mr. Godfrey, I, I just don't think I'm saved. And I said, well, talk me, talk me through when you got saved. And they walked me through this testimony of, you know, they knew exactly who Jesus Christ was, what he did. They accepted him. They, I mean, at point in time, right? Uh, they could take you to the place. Take you to the hour, right? Uh, they just knew exactly all of those things. And, and then I'd look at them and say, well, tell me about how, how's your walk with Christ? Well, and they hang their head. And I say, when's the last time you spent time in the Word of God? Well, you know, when's the last time you were fervent in your prayers? Well, 
You know what happens in our Christian life? And that's this. If we don't add to our faith, we can get to the place where not only are we blinded to the spiritual realities of the future, but we can get so blinded we don't even remember that we're saved. Now, that doesn't change the eternal security of our salvation. But it does change how we serve. Because you can't serve God without the confidence of knowing you're His child. And we can get to the place where we don't even remember that our sins were purged. And when we get to that place spiritually, we are exactly where Satan wants us because we are ineffective for Christ. We're ineffective in that moment. Oh, friend, don't feast on the dainties of this world. Don't allow your life to be so consumed that you don't add to your faith. You know, I, I end with this. My wife, she's really good at math. She teaches Algebra 1. She's taught Algebra 2 at our school. And inevitably, and I wasn't bad at math when I was a kid or when I was in high school, but it's not necessarily something I've kept with me, right? But she's much better than I am. She's actually much smarter than me all the way around. She made 4.0 and everything. Um, and I knew she was smart because she wanted to marry me. So, um, <clears throat> But inevitably, I'll try to disagree with her about some type of math, math facts, right? Like, We'll be talking about life. It'll be something, you know. I'll be like, no, no, no. This is equals this. And she just looks at me now. And I know what that looks like. That look says to me, John, you're wrong. Just accept it in this moment, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm probably wrong. She's like, yes, you are. And I'll whip out my calculator, prove that I'm right, and I'm wrong, right? <clears throat> but I'm so thankful in the Christian life, it doesn't say, and multiply to your faith. It says an ad. You know, The Christian life is a daily thing. It's just being faithful today. And if you failed him yesterday, the blessings of the Christian life is his mercy and his love and his grace is afresh and anew every day. Every day we get to wake up and start again. And today I can add to my faith. And you know what? If I fail today, I can add tomorrow. And I'm so thankful the Christian life is a daily thing. It's a daily thing where all of us All of us can add to our faith and know our Savior more intimately. And if we will do that, the Bible says we will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would bless your word. I pray that you take it, that you would use it in our hearts and lives, apply it to us as only you can. Lord, that we would grow, that we would not just hear these truths, but we would internalize them, that they would change us into the image of Jesus Christ. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.